the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you. Good afternoon. Welcome. Tuesday, May the 3rd edition of Lifeline. And uh, we've got a lot to unpack today, so we're just going to, boom, dive right in. You have no doubt heard the news. If not, let me bring you up to speed. The Supreme Court is actually confirming now that a leaked draft of a decision overturning Roe versus Wade was indeed authentic. In a statement, the Supreme Court was careful to note that it is, quote, not represent a decision by the court or the final position of any member on the issues in the case, close quote. Chief Justice John Roberts called the leak an egregious breach of the court's trust and investigation being launched to determine exactly where the leak originated. Now, some have embraced this with glee and enthusiasm. Let me be contrarian today to suggest that this leak, by whomever, is with nefarious intent. For example, witness the response by Planned Parenthood. The organization's president, Alexis Johnson, is promising that they will, quote, mobilize, blasting the draft, saying it was unbelievably unconscionable, noting outrage has been seen in states where laws restricting abortion have been enacted, promising that Planned Parenthood will capture that rage and move that into the midterm elections, close quote. And I've got to believe... In large part, that was exactly the intent. If you thought June and later November was going to be about things like the economy, the overall direction of our nation, things that are kind of on the common list that everybody's talking about these days, let me suggest to you that for those that profit handily off of abortion, uh, this is the new marching order. This is the new call to arms, so to speak. Mike O'Neill joins us with more insights. He's assistant general counsel with the Landmark Legal Foundation. And, Mike, we appreciate you carving out some time to be with us today. There's been largely speculation, certainly amongst pro-lifers, that likely when a decision was handed down by the courts sometime in June, that it may stand in favor of an upholding of, for example, law in states like Texas, Mississippi, right. etc., that said, do you concur with me, Counselor, that the release of this information in such a premature fashion most notably must have the design of wanting to, quote-unquote, rally the troops? And I use the statement by Planned Parenthood of evidence of same. Well, certainly, let's look at what we're talking about now. It changes the, it changes the discussion. Instead of talking about inflation, instead of talking about 
Joe Biden's terrible foreign policy record, the terrible domestic record he has, whether he is even capable as, as, as continuing on as president, we are talking about the we are talking about abortion. So it's for the purposes of that, and at least for the for the time being, it has changed the conversation. Whether it's going to have an appreciable effect in November remains to be seen. Again, I would still assert from a political standpoint that people will vote from their pocketbooks. There's been the the, the individuals who vote who use abortion as a as a as a single issue voter have been have been polarized already, and those votes are probably already counted. It might, in the short term, term mobilize some of the left to act as ridiculous as they're acting. But I don't think my my personal opinion, and I could be wrong, of course, is that it will not have an appreciable effect of the November election. I really think the long term problems with the economy and Joe Biden's incompetence as president will will. Uh, will affect it way more than and than, than the Supreme Court decision. I have to wonder, though, I mean, given the fact that some of the early polling seemed to suggest that things were not going in the Democrats' direction, right. that perhaps the release of this document, less maybe on face value about the abortion issue, I mean, you know, I don't know that we can emphatically say it was a foregone conclusion, but given the makeup of the court, and particularly with its newest members, there seemed to largely be a feeling that it was going to be a paradigm shift that would likely say thumbs down to uh, Casey, Roe, uh, Doe. Uh, but that said, if, if the design here is to get more liberals to the ballot box come November, I, I suspect that it may have that effect. But let's let's talk about the broader issue related to sure. abortion itself, and that is, uh, you know, the 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 chief justice is saying this has no bearing; it's not a final decision, and reaction to this one way or the other will have no bearing, no impact on the ultimate decision that's handed down by the court. G- give me your sense in terms of just how true that is, and and now looking at less long-term, more the the short-term, if indeed what we saw in this leaked document is is a true depiction of the direction the court is heading in, um, what kind of battle lines in your mind does this draw, if at all? Once it's sort of been pushed back to the states, there's no longer a, a protection, so to speak, at the federal level for abortion on demand. Right. Well, it certainly it, it, it uh, let's talk about this. Abortion belong is a political issue that belongs in the hands of the people, and it belongs in the hands of the state legislatures. There is no constitutional right to an abortion. The cases that you talked about, Roe, Casey, and Doe, are all unmoored to any constitutional structure, any any constitutional text, or any enumerated right within the Constitution. So it's before 1973, it was a state issue. It was to be decided in the political realm, and now if if this decision is final, and again, that's a big if, and you, you rightly pointed out, it is a draft decision. Nothing final has been released. And I would actually encourage, um, I, I would hope that the Supreme Court would expedite its release and would give the, the, the any, any dissenters the opportunity to register their dissent, but expedite the release of this instead of releasing the opinion, which in all likelihood would have been late June, early July, sometimes even into early July, very early July. I would encourage and I would hope that the court would release it within the next week or so. Um, that being said, I think the battle lines will be drawn, and that, that is a, a, new, a new front in the abortion issue, in the, abortion, in the battle about over-abortion in our country. It will be returned to the political realms. It will be 
the people will have a say in this, when the people have been denied a say in this for 50 years. And now, returning it to the state legislatures, if if the left wants to mobilize to change the laws for abortion, then they can then they can do that. Conversely, pro-life individuals can mobilize their folks, their resources, and have a political resolution to this issue. And and, and certainly, to be clear here, this does not outlaw abortion, but it instead right. basically says. 73 was a bad decision. Ironically, even even a former justice like Ruth Bader Ginsburg around the periphery concurred with that, though the conclusion might be very, very different in terms of how she would vote have would have voted for something like this. But that said, this essentially says it's no longer codified as a quote unquote constitutional right, which, as you aptly point out, never was constitutionally to begin with, and instead turns the issue, the matter back to the states for a decision. So there's going to be some winners and losers. Here and, and, and clearly, they're going to be states like California. They're going to say, right. all right, we're going to make this sort of the rallying cry and huh, essentially, as we're already beginning to do, create an environment where I, I guess as much as you have, uh, you know, um, tourism to foreign countries to get, um, you know, selected procedures oh, for, so say, awful. face lifts, this will now be abortion tourism to states like California. Would you suspect that's going to be how this is going to play out? I, I, I mean, you've seen, you've seen all kinds of things, but I, I certainly agree with you. In the, the deeper blue states, you're going to see more, you're going to see looser restrictions, if any restrictions at all. I mean, I, I, I'm loath to think that incidences of late-term abortion should have any kind of, any kind of uh, support amongst the populace or any kind of support amongst the state legislature. Those, those awful, those, those really egregious, particularly heinous, awful procedures that we've all heard, you know, nightmare scenarios about. That being said, I'm sure you will see in some of the blue states, or you know, abortions as they stay largely unchanged. Other states will have greater restrictions on abortion, if not banning abortion outright. And again, this is a political decision, and it could be as legislatures change, the laws can change, and the people will have a say in it. And again, it's imperative to note, and you just said it, but it bears repeating that this decision. If, if this is a final decision, assuming that this is some sort of a close approximation to what ultimately the court decides, it is not an outlawing of abortion. It is the court ruling that there is no constitutional right to it. The decision is left to the states. The Constitution, in the words of Justice Kavanaugh in oral argument, is neutral on it. It is silent on it. Final question, Counselor. Uh, the president has already come out and said that he's they're going to vow to protect a woman's right to choose. And of mm-hmm. course, uh, you know the, the sort of the 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 final um, uh, ammunition that they have at their disposal is through the United States Congress. I can't imagine this passing in the Senate, for example, particularly with the filibuster rule as it stands right, right. now. Uh, it, it would seem to me that this is you know the, the foregone conclusion that nothing further is going to happen legislatively. Uh, but what are your what's your take on that? I completely agree. You 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 nailed it right on the head. I completely agree with you. There is there's not enough votes to overturn the filibuster, to abandon the filibuster rule, and therefore there is not they do not the Democrats do not have enough votes in the Senate to enact federal legislation codifying Roe or codifying Casey. And I think you you aptly stated it. And Manchin and Cinema have both stated that they will not work. They will not overturn the filibuster. 
And given all that's transpiring in our country today, I just can't imagine that this would necessarily, though I think that was the intent of the release, I still can't imagine that this is going to wind up proving to be some sort of a a beneficial or successful rallying cry uh, to turn out more voters to the polls in November on the promise of reversing what appears to be a foregone conclusion in this Supreme Court decision. So it's going to be interesting. Battle lines certainly being drawn. But this time, the battle lines, instead of being at the federal level, are going to be back at the state level, where, frankly, it should have been from the very get-go. Mike O'Neill, Assistant General Counsel with the Landmark Legal Foundation. Mike, we appreciate the time and the insights online at landmarklegal.org. 516. Liberty Baptist School in San Jose provides a Christ-centered, values-based education with an academically challenging curriculum. Small class sizes mean more personal attention from dedicated, experienced teachers. A loving, safe, family-like environment for more than 53 years, Liberty Baptist is a fully accredited school with reasonably priced tuition. Now accepting applications for the 22-23 school year at libertybaptistschool.org. That's libertybaptistschool.org. Balance of Nature, changing the world one life at a time. I'm a physician, and I still see patients every day. And, you know, so I tell my patients about this. And they ask me, what are you taking? And so I tell them, taking Balance of Nature. And they go, oh, yeah, I've heard about that. You know, so I tell them how to get it. I give them your telephone number, 246-8751. And I tell them, call this number. And I said, they'll, they'll take care of you after that. So... You know, I mean, I, I'm primary care. You know, I really think that it works well for, for people to have fruits and vegetables. Start your journey to better health with Balance of Nature right now. Call 1-800-246-8751 or go to balanceofnature.com for more information or to place your order. Shipping is always free. And don't forget to get 35% off your first order as a preferred customer by using discount code balance. So I found a new fear last week. I walked into my doctor's office and there was nobody at the front desk. Just one of those little silver bells that said, please ring. I crept my little finger up to it, trying to just barely touch it. But sure enough, it sounded like a giant air horn going off. It's Ryan. And the goal of this commercial is for our faith and family mortgage team to say, don't be scared to smash our bell. Maybe you're thinking of buying a new home, but you don't know what the exact details would look like. Maybe the value of your current home has skyrocketed the last few years. Most have. And so you'd like to see what it would look like to cash out some of that newfound equity to use for life. We chose KFAX specifically, and we're committed to super-serving this station for the long haul. So ding that bell away. No question is too dumb. No pressure will you ever feel. We our United Faith Mortgage. We pay $1,000 of your closing costs on new home purchases. That's a lot. United Mortgage Court, Melbourne, New York. Animalist number 1330. Licensed by the Department of Business Oversight under the California Residential Mortgage Lending Act. Hi there, Jordan Michaels here. Have you ever noticed in buying new towels that they can look beautiful, be soft and fluffy, but they're hardly absorbent? And isn't that the whole purpose of a towel? You know, I think we'd all agree we want a towel that looks good and feels great and works. Well, my pillow inventor, Mike Lindell, found the best towel company right here in America that gives everything you want in a good towel. It's made with good old US of A cotton. Right now, you can get such a great deal on these my pillow towels. I have a set of my own, so I know firsthand how great they are. Six-piece set includes two bath, two hand towels, two washcloths for what was normally $109.99. And now get this. 
$39.99. When you get out of the shower and dry off, boy, this is a towel you're going to want to reach for. Go to MyPillow.com, click the new radio listener specials, enter the promo code KFAX or call 800-479-1790. MyPillow.com, use that promo code KFAX. 30s and 40s that I've been collecting and slowly restoring down through many, many years. It's just kind of a of a hobby. Many, many years ago, back in the 1970s, I began collecting 78 records and have um, down through the years by visiting quite a number of <laughs> flea markets and garage sales and the like, amassed a pretty good-sized collection there, too. And, you know, after a while, you, you begin to realize that as much as you might uh, enjoy collecting stuff, either because you do it out of a hobby or sometimes you do it because you gives, it gives you a sense of of emotional security or you just can't throw the stuff out and then you begin to realize that slowly you're overwhelmed by it all. I guess the question is, as we talk today about this issue of feeling stuffed or overstuffed by stuffed, how do we deal with it all? Um, this can run the gambit of those on the extreme end of the continuum that are um, perhaps potential candidates for the Hoarders TV program to people that maybe don't live under piles of garbage, but they still have so much stuff in their life that they feel completely overwhelmed by it. And it begs the question, are you overwhelmed by life that you become overwhelmed by stuff? Or is it vice versa? We're going to get some wonderful insights today from best-selling author Ruth Sukup. Her new book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. She is the um, founder of livingwellspendingless.com and creator of the Living Well Planner. We'll tell you more about how you can find out uh, details concerning her ministry a little bit later on in tonight's program. And uh, meanwhile, Ruth, great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Let's talk about this issue. I've, I've had a bit of experience in dealing with this of recent times um, with family members that have passed away. And um, yes. as is typical, you have to come in and become the cleanup party. And um, it's, um, it's a bit of a challenge sometimes when you're going through years of things that have been collected, some stuff very lovingly, other things that seem to be, from your perspective, kept for no good potential reason. And, of course, as, as we try to figure out why we're so attached to stuff as it is, uh, it would seem to me that a lot of this has to do with just the, the culture of materialism that we have in the world today. I think it does have a lot to do with the culture of materialism. I think we are inundated with messages every time we turn around saying, you know, buy more, buy more, get this. This is going to be the thing that's going to make you happy. This is the thing that's going to make you more efficient. This is the thing that's going to get you organized. And we buy into every single message, and sometimes not even every single message, but we buy into some of the messages, and that's enough because there's so much, and it's so pervasive, and it ends up filling our life, and everything we think is going to make our life simpler actually only serves to complicate everything. And, uh, you know, some of this begs the, the, the age-old uh, which-came-first-chicken-or-egg question. Is it a sense <laughs> of people who become so overwhelmed by life that they eventually become overwhelmed by stuff? There's things going on, and so it's, it's less a matter of having energy to go through, tidy the house, throw things away, things get put off, procrastination creeps in, uh, all of that? Or is it a case where people kind of give up? Because they become so overwhelmed by stuff that it seems as if they, they just don't know where to begin. They're not quite certain how all of this happened. They just know that now that they're there, they have no idea how to begin addressing it. Is it either or or what? 
I think it's probably a little bit of both. It's almost like a a crazy cycle that we find ourselves getting into where one makes the other worse and you you don't know exactly what started, but they kind of, once you're in there, it's really hard to get out of the cycle. Um, And, you know, it's really not just the the physical clutter and the physical stuff in our life that weighs us down. And for some people, there's, you know, it's sometimes it's the physical clutter and then other times it's the mental clutter. It's the way that we overstuff our schedules. It's the paperwork and the information overload that's just constantly bombarding us. Uh, or it could even be the guilt that we feel, you know, you were talking about when you inherit other people's stuff. We deal with, with that, and that's something that I talk about in the book as well. So there's lots of different ways that it manifests itself, but I think the results are often the same. It's this feeling of overwhelm. Now, in my recent experience in dealing with this with a family member, uh, a part of it I think it has to do with the byproduct of being a de- depression-era baby, uh, somebody who went through that period of time that knows what it's like to go without and therefore has a very um, conservative side to them, uh, a fondness of recycling, though things never quite make it all the way to the recyclers. And so, it, it, you know, it, I, I guess it becomes a way that, that some of this can be um, justified. In other words, uh, plastic margarine tubs are saved because they can be recycled and used for food. So if you keep one or two, why not keep 50 or 100? Or uh, toilet paper rolls that can be kept because you can use them as great little holders for extension cords. But then again, how many extension cords do you really practically have? Aluminum foil, well, aluminum foil can be flattened out and reused. And before you know it, it's not just an accumulation of things that are of value, things you want to keep, things that have sentimental value, but then you quickly get overwhelmed by all of this other stuff that, quite frankly, at the end of the day, has no real intrinsic value to it. But your sense of having lived through times of great sacrifice and not having compels you to keep all of this. Yes. Yeah. And that, and you find that a lot in that depression era generation. And, you know, there's, I, I, there's not necessarily an easy solution for that either because it's almost this mindset that's so ingrained. But then what's happening now is that generation is beginning to, you know, pass on. There, it's the kids that are inheriting all of this, this whole house full of stuff, and some of it is is worthwhile, and a lot of it is not. And having to sift through and deal with that, and that only adds to the overwhelm because we already have all of our own stuff, and then we get other people's stuff added into the mix as well. So it gets, it gets to be this crazy, crazy cycle of so much stuff, and what do you do with it? And there's a little bit of justification to this, isn't there? Because let's face it, we have been uh, hit over the head with this message of recycle things, save the planet, conserve, and so therefore, as I found with this one family member, uh, there was great care and effort given to recycling plastic and aluminum and glass and paper and and stacks and piles and things and, and, and relatively organized. It's just that it never seemed to make it to the recyclers. And before you know it, you get overwhelmed by all of these things that, yes, have some, you know, use in a recycling environment. But I wonder if some of these messages today don't become a crutch that people can use or pretext that allows them to continue to accumulate because they think someday I'll use it again or I'll recycle it. Well, I think the idea that I might use this someday is definitely one of the big reasons that people hang on to stuff. And there's a lot of guilt that gets attached to stuff. And this is something that I really talk about in, in my book, Unstuffed, where there is 
there are lots of different types of guilt that get attached to stuff. So some of it is, well, this could be useful and I don't want to throw it away because I might use it someday. There's guilt that gets attached to stuff because it's an unfulfilled goal or an unfulfilled dream. So say you bought some scrapbooking material because you have grand visions of creating this scrapbook of all of your memories and you never got around to it. And then you don't want to get rid of the stuff because if you do, it means that you failed in this idea that you had um, of scrapbooking or, you know, you don't want to get rid of something because it was a gift or because you spent lots of money on it. And so all of these different guilt um, things manifest themselves in different ways, but it all ends up resulting in holding on to too much stuff. And then that in turn makes us feel guilty because we're, you know, our lives are cluttered and we feel overwhelmed and we're guilty because we're holding on to this stuff and yet we feel guilty for getting rid of it. And so again, it gets us into this cycle of not being able to let go, but not wanting to hold on to stuff either. And the solution for that really is a couple of different things. You know, for sentimental items, we really have to learn how to separate out the memories from the stuff. And that's hard, isn't it? Because there's that sense of guilt over gifts or something that's tied into sentimental value, especially if it's a loved one who's passed away. Yes. I I found myself going through and finding things when my parents passed that uh, under any other circumstances, if somebody had said, do you need this? Do you want this? Does this mean? Nah, not really. Oh, you know, mom gave it to me 10 years ago, but yeah, that can go away. After she passed away, all of a sudden, things that were the most insignificant become of great value because you reason in your mind, well, that's the last time she will ever give that to me, or I know that I'll never receive a gift from her again, and there suddenly we assign tremendous emotional value to something that, quite frankly, may be of no value whatsoever. Yes, and that is incredibly difficult, and I understand exactly what you're talking about. We just went through that, um, and I talk about that in the book as well, with my mother-in-law passed away about four years ago, and then my sister-in-law um, tragically passed away about two years ago. And so we inherited both of their, you know, estates and had to had to kind of go through that process twice, just back to back. And it was really difficult because you feel like you are throwing away somebody's life when you have to get rid of their stuff. And even though it's it was a lot of it wasn't sentimental necessarily to us, it was sentimental because we loved them. And And I think that's a little bit what you're speaking about. And so we really had to get to this point where we realized that the memories of our loved ones were not the same as their stuff. We had to separate the memory from the stuff and realize that memories and stuff are not the same. And that's really the only way that you can kind of deal with this influx of of other people's stuff from a sentimental standpoint. We're visiting today with Ruth Sukup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. For a lot of us, this is a difficult issue to deal with. It seems like the older we get, we certainly tend to accumulate lots and lots more stuff. How do we begin to give some order to our lives that will not only um, deal with the issue, but, but ultimately give us the kind of liberty that we're looking for? And I'll give you one hint. When we come back after the break and continue our conversation with Ruth, I'm going to suspect she's going to tell us that the problem here is not a lack of space. A brief time out, back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
We're visiting with New York Times bestselling author Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Ruth, to most of us that are collectors or gatherers of lots of stuff of value and otherwise, uh, the typical explanation, at least in our own mind, and perhaps even the justification to others is, it isn't an issue that I have too much stuff. You don't understand, Ruth. It's just that I don't have enough space. I need more closet space. My house isn't big enough. I need to run out to Walmart and go get some storage containers. That will solve my stuff problem. What about that reasoning? Oh, and I am so, so guilty of that mentality. In fact, for years, I shuffled my stuff around thinking, I live in Florida where we don't have a lot of storage space because there are no basements here in Florida. And there, you know, you can't store stuff in the garage or the attic because it's too hot. And so I would complain all the time that, oh, we just don't have enough closet space. There's no place to store anything. And I would buy more containers and more boxes and more bins trying to organize it. And I, I just kept thinking, It's just that I don't have the right system. I can't stay organized because I don't have the right system. And it finally, finally occurred to me at some point that my problem wasn't a lack of storage space at all. It was that I just had too much stuff. And every time I was going to Target to buy more organizing containers, I was also buying more stuff. And because, you know, I'd get caught up in the cute pillow or the cute picture frame or the cute candle because everything there is cute. And so... It was something that I just had to really realize that my problem wasn't storage space at all. It was it was definitely the fact that I had too much stuff. Now you realize, of course, the entire storage space industry out there, everybody that rents these lockers and pods <laughs> and everything else, they're going to be very disappointed to hear this because they have spent decades convincing us that it's not a matter of having too much stuff. It's a matter of not having enough space to put it in. <laughs> Yes. Well, I'm sure they'll be doing just fine with the with the rate at which Americans are buying stuff. I don't <laughs> think they have to worry too much. But, you know, it really is in our lives. I think it's such a matter of learning how to stop the flow of stuff that's coming in. And I, I have an acronym that I like to use to help people when they're trying to declutter their lives. Of It's sort of a four-step process, but the acronym is FREE, F-R-E-E. And so the first step is your F step, which is to fight to stop the flow and until you do that you really can't work on anything else because if you're still all the decluttering and all the purging in the world is not going to help you if you're still going to target every week and buying new things and filling up your home so that's really really the most important element of decluttering is to just actually be very vigilant about not letting any new stuff in that's the first step. Then second, you can start working on ruthlessly purging. So that's your R step is that you definitely want to begin getting rid of the things that you don't need. And my criteria for that is anything that is currently useful despite who gave it to you and despite how much it costs. Well, wait a minute, Ruth. Let me interrupt. I, I realize that this stack of magazines is five feet tall, but you don't understand there are recipes in there that I need yes. to cut out of there. Or, or, you know, a lot of the, for a guy, a lot of those magazines, you know, Popular Mechanics and, uh, you know, the latest sporting magazines, you know, I want to be able to keep all of the information about the amazing season that the San Francisco Giants had last year. And so I just need time to, I'm going to, this weekend, I'm going to set aside time and clip out all those articles. Are you really? You're not convinced, are you? <laughs> because everybody who says that, you're right. The, the question really is, are you really? Because the answer is no, not really. That's just a pretext to keep it all. Right. 
And that's where we have to really be honest with ourselves and say, currently useful, have I, have I used this? And I, have I looked at these magazines in the last six months or a year? And if the answer is no, and I can understand that, that hanging on to old magazines, because I actually do hang on to old magazines, not, and, and I don't look at them that often, but I do look at them sometimes. And so, and I think they're pretty and I have them in my office and I have them stacked and organized. So one of the things that's really, really important that, and I talk about this a lot in the book is creating a vision for your home. And that's really important because a lot of times we have this idea of what our home is supposed to look like and what, how we're supposed to be organized and how we're supposed to live clutter free. And so if we, if we read magazines and we look at, you know, House Beautiful or Pinterest and we have all these visions in our head of what the ideal is supposed to be. So a lot of the things we buy are based on the ideal and not how we actually use our home. But at the same time, we all have a different threshold for what we can tolerate in terms of clutter. What is clutter to me might not feel like clutter to you and vice versa. So the first thing that you really, really need to do is is become absolutely clear about what your vision is of your home and how you actually use your home and who you share your home with and how they use your home so that you can set up a standard for kind of what you're going for. Isn't there, though, a lot of justification that takes place, uh, Ruth, when it comes to this whole definition of how you define clutter versus how I define it? And I ask that question going back to a loved one who, if queried and pressed hard enough, might someone admit that, yeah, it's a little bit cluttered and yet difficult to admit clearly, yeah, there's a lot of clutter here. When it's down to a pathway down the hallway, it's clutter. It, 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 it's hard to, you know, I, I know that there are extremes. Somebody says if there's, if there's two file folders on the desk, that's clutter. And others say there could be 20 file folders, stacks of file folders on the desk. But so long as they're all organized, not strewn every which way, and I know what's in each pile, I don't consider it clutter. But I'm talking about those extreme degrees where people justify, uh, perhaps not as much to others as they do to themselves, that it really isn't clutter when at the end of the day it is clutter. Well, I think that the criteria needs to be what's causing stress. If it if it does not if it honestly does not bother you and you you like things a certain way and it doesn't cause frustration and it doesn't cause stress, then more power to you. Then I think you know you need to understand that. But a lot of times with people and clutter, it is causing stress. And there are things that are, are weighing down on you. You know, it might be the stress of not ever being able to find anything. And that is stressful. Not paying bills on time because your your paperwork is completely unorganized. And or it might be that, you know, you're a, a, a couple lives together and they have different thresholds. And so they fight a lot about a mess because one, the mess doesn't bother them at all. And the other is is very bothered by it. So when they're, when the clutter is causing stress either in your relationship or in your life or um, in any sort of area, then that's when I think that it becomes problematic. People can have different thresholds, but if there's a threshold that's causing stress, that's where you need to start addressing it. And, of course, there's a degree to which uh, the old adage, it takes two to tango. And uh, sometimes we find people are drowning together, aren't they? Where maybe uh, maybe one spouse after a season just gives up because they've not been able to encourage the, the clutter collector to break the habit. 
Oh, absolutely. I think, <laughs> you know, I like to say that couples sharpen each other's swords, but it can go the other way, too. And sometimes, you know, you, you just for the sake of peace, you end up um, one gives in. Let's take a time out. We're going to come back to more of our conversation. Ruth Soak up a guest today. Her book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul, even organizing things like all the paperwork that in life are necessities. How do we deal with that? We'll talk about that next as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to the discussion with Ruth Sokup. The book is called Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. Now, I made mention before the break, Ruth, we have everything from sentimental things like birthday cards, anniversary cards that we wish to keep down through the years. My grandmother had a collection that when she passed away, we discovered went back all the way to Valentine's Day cards in the 1920s. Some amazing stuff and very grateful that she kept all of that. But then we add to that the list of recipes and news magazine articles. And then, of course, you have everything related to income taxes and and legal papers, some people of which keep not only years, decades worth of stuff. I'll tell you a story. I've done this show for 25 years plus now. And in the early days, pre-Internet, everything was paper and everything got filed in filing cabinets. And over the course of many years, I had accumulated a total of four five-drawer vertical file filing cabinets. That's 20 filing cabinet drawers worth of stuff. And it got to the point where we finally realized with the advent of the Internet and the ability to scan papers and save them into a computer that there was no need for all of that anymore, that any of the documents and information and notes and resources that had been accumulated over the course of a decade, two decades, that had all been neatly filed away could actually all be neatly ground up into scrap paper and all of it could be utilized or gained off the Internet. Is that one approach to go electronic when it comes to managing a lot of the information that we want to keep from family photographs to, quite frankly, all the legal paperwork necessary for tax season and the like? Well, actually, you know, the Internet is kind of a double-edged sword because it has improved the the amount of paper, I guess, lessened the amount of actual physical paper we have, but it has increased the amount of information that we have coming at us so much that it is just as overwhelming, if not more overwhelming than the actual physical paper that we have piling up on our desk. And I like to say that paper paper clutter and information clutter, which I kind of view as almost the same thing because the problem is the same, it's not really a clutter problem, but it's a procrastination problem. And what I mean by that is that most of the paper that we get and that comes to us and most of the information that comes to us via email is all requiring our action. So what it's doing is overwhelming us because we're procrastinating to make a decision and we don't want to have to make a decision about all of these things because our brains can't handle that number of decisions all of the time. And so we procrastinate it and and it piles up and then it gets worse. And again, we get into another cycle of craziness because there's so many decisions that have to be made at any given time. And there's so many things demanding our attention and demanding our response. If somebody emails me, I'm expected to return their their email and then they email me back and it's this kind of 
endless cycle of, of need and response that we have to attend to all the time. And that becomes very, very overwhelming. I think there was a confession I read in the book <laughs> related to things like keeping emails or keeping voicemail messages for a long time to the point that the box got filled. I, I know several people that have that same habit. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I have offered that as a solution because voicemails are another thing. So what I did I was my voicemail box, I let it fill up. Um, about two years ago, and it has been full ever since. So it is impossible to leave me a voicemail, and that has uncomplicated my life in so many ways. It's amazing. I never have to listen to voicemails. I don't. If somebody can't get a hold of me, they try back later, and or they send me a text message, and, <laughs> and it works out so much better for me. It's just one less thing that I have to check and that I have to listen to and then I have to respond to, and so. You know, I, I don't know that that's the best solution, but I think that one of the things that you can do, and this is what goes for paper clutter or email clutter, is create an information filter for yourself. So basically what that means is that it's, it's just a set of internal rules that tells our brain what to pay attention to and what to ignore. And it's some sort of little guideline that we have that our brain can automatically go, oh, this came in here. And so this goes over here. And so it's an if this, then that. And if, if we can set up enough of those easy rules for our brain, then it sifts everything for us. And we don't have to make quite as many decisions, which means we're not quite as, quite as overwhelmed. Is it helpful, too, to come up with a management program, so to speak, in your own mind that helps reduce the stuff before it becomes stuff? And I asked that question because I started doing something many, many years ago. Uh, I located a recycling bin very near the entrance to the house from the garage so that when I come in uh, after work and I go through the mail, there are flyers and circulars and petitions and ads and all of that stuff. I don't give it a chance to get into the house. It makes it as far as that front door. If it has a name on it that maybe I think, oh, I don't want this to be just thrown into the trash can, so I'm going to shred it, I'll maybe tear that off. But otherwise, I will tell you this, with great disappointment to all of you out there that send me ads and circulars and flyers in the mail, it never makes it across the threshold because it all stops in the recycling bin at the garage door. Is that a good idea? That is exactly how an information filter works. You have already set one up without even knowing it. It's your if is if you've got junk mail, it goes straight into the recycling bin, and that's exactly how it works. So when you can set up those type of simple, simple rules, and it, and I mean it has to be simple. I think a lot of times, especially when it comes to getting organized, we think we have to set up these complicated systems and filing systems, and everything has to be color coded and. We overcomplicate the process, and then what happens is we don't follow through on it because it's too complicated to keep up on. It's too complicated for the rest of our family to understand, and it doesn't work. But the simpler you can make the system, the simpler you can make the rule where it becomes so automatic that you don't even think about it, that's when you start to eliminate the overwhelm. Let's talk about some other ideas in terms of eliminating the overwhelm. And, of course, the big question is, how do we even get started? And, and I, I've gone through this myself where you, you look at the piles and go, my goodness, it goes from that corner to that corner. I, I, do I begin at the bottom and work my way to the top? Do I start at the top or work my way to the bottom? And, and by the time you've contemplated this for a good five or ten minutes, it's sometimes just easier to say, mm, you know what, I'll, I'll come back to this tomorrow. How do you begin to get the process really started? 
Well, you know, there's a couple of different things depending on your personality and depending on what you have time for. One of the things I offer in the book is um, a list of quick wins, things that you can do in five minutes or less. And sometimes that's really helpful for people. Once you see a little bit of progress, it helps you um, snowball into more progress. Another thing you can do is do, you know, tackle one area of your home per day and commit to that. And we actually have a challenge um, on my blog, Living Well, Spending Less, called 31 Days to a Clutter-Free Life, which gives you 31 days of, of decluttering projects. But one other suggestion that I offer in the book is what I call the Unstuck Weekend Challenge. So that is sort of like a quick win on steroids because you set aside an entire weekend starting on Friday evening and going through Sunday evening and you're, you plan ahead and you plan your meals ahead so that you've got easy meals. You don't have to worry about cooking and cleaning up and you know, arrange childcare if you've got kids at home or if they're older, you can have them help. But the entire weekend, and I give you an hour-by-hour schedule of where you start and what you do. You set the timer. You do all different activities throughout the weekend. And by the end of the weekend, you've made a lot of progress. And and that can give you enough confidence to keep going forward. And I should mention to listeners, there was a complete suggested plan of attack, so to speak, inside the pages of Ruth's new book that will be very helpful in helping you to kind of get that strategy up and running. Before our time winds down here, Ruth, I want you to say a word about the impact of stuff on relationships. And you talk about this, too, in the book. Uh, we've certainly heard and, and maybe even directly experienced cases where stuff comes between us and others. Um, sometimes it's a substitute for others. Sometimes maybe it's safer than relationships. Speak to that, if you would, please. Well, you know, in the book, I do talk a lot about um, decluttering your re- relationships and the importance of decluttering your relationships. And that gets a little bit tricky because we can't unstuff people like we can unstuff, you know, our clothes clothing that we no longer want. You don't throw people away. And that's not what I'm advocating. But, you know, in today's culture with social media and and the internet, it has sort of cheapened our friendships a lot, I think. And we have very, a very broad, wide range of friendships, and yet they're very shallow. And so I think that it's, that's something that's really missing in people's lives. And it, it takes a lot away from our lives when we're not cultivating those deep and meaningful friendships. But we can't be, have deep and meaningful friendships with 500 people on Facebook. You have to be real selective. And that's what I, what I talk about in the book is about how you kind of focus on those friendships that are really the most meaningful and, and make those a priority in your life. It is a great way to get started with some spring cleaning to not only unstuff your your house, but also to declutter your home, mind, and soul. The book's called Unstuffed. It's an easy read and one that I think, um, no matter how much you personally may struggle with this or a loved one does, I think can be an invaluable tool getting that process started. Check it out. The book, newly published by Zondervan. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area. You can also get it at the usual suspects, Amazon.com. Also on Ruth's website, livingwellspendingless.com. That's livingwellspendingless.com. And our thanks to Ruth Sokup for, to Ruth Sokup for being with us. The book, Unstuffed, Decluttering Your Home, Mind, and Soul. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.